This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Waiki Wang read her story Status in Flux from the June 26, 2023 issue of the magazine. Wang is the author of two novels, Chemistry, which won the Penn Hemingway Award in 2018, and Joan is Okay, which was published in 2022. Now here's Waiki Wang. Status in flux. For two years, no one traveled. Countries closed their borders to other countries that had closed their borders first. When borders reopened, everyone began traveling again in full force. There would always be another variant. Best to see the world while you could. Around this time, I developed insomnia and began driving by myself at night. The first night, I drove to a 24-hour supermarket I stood in front of the frozen food section, occasionally opening a freezer door to grab something, then changing my mind. It was not that in year three I couldn't travel, but to do so was ill-advised. My husband was an American citizen, and we lived in New Jersey. Renewing my work visa yet again seemed like a complete waste of everyone's time. So we'd hired a lawyer for my green card process, and in one of the six-minute phone slots we had with her, She told me to stay put during the period between the application submission and the interview. I could travel within the U.S., but leaving the country was tricky. My husband asked how long we would have to stay put. The lawyer said that the average case took at least 11 months now, since the prior administration had stalled many green cards, since the prior administration had wished to limit immigration from certain countries. I reminded the lawyer that I was Canadian. And she said that to leave the country and try to come back was to risk being held up at customs for not having a clear residency status in either Canada or the U.S. Once we submit these forms, she said, your status will be in flux. The lawyer also emphasized that I absolutely could not quit my job during the application process. The company I worked for had already submitted proof of employment. If I quit, the company would rescind the form and my application would be far less strong. In addition to the forms, we had to provide photographs of ourselves and my work visas, our marriage license and birth certificates, notarized letters confirming that our marriage was genuine, and the sealed results of a medical exam showing that I was thoroughly vaccinated and not a carrier of any communicable diseases such as tuberculosis, syphilis, or gonorrhea. Grad school was my sole reason for coming to this country, and had I not met my husband, I would not have stayed. Now it was as if through him I was trying to steal status or jump the line. On each form, we triple-checked dates, addresses, and the spellings of our names. One form was titled Petition for Alien Relative, another Application for Advanced Parole. Parole allowing me to travel for absolute emergencies, which the lawyer said to avoid. So it wasn't just that I felt both alien and criminal, the words were plainly there. The lawyer mentioned possible complications that could lead to delays. Although I had Canadian citizenship, I was born in China. The green card would open my route to American citizenship, and I might end up a citizen of two countries, neither of which was my birthplace. In an annoyed male voice, my husband asked why that would be a complication. 
In an annoyed female voice, our lawyer replied, I don't make the rules, just anticipate delays. My husband never had insomnia. He slept soundly through the night, every night, and that made me want to kick him, like with both feet on his back, propelling him off the bed and onto the floor. Once I'd had that thought, I put on a jacket and got into the car. At the supermarket again, I decided on frozen pizzas. I bought seven, of varying crust thickness. I thought maybe as a fun activity, we could eat only pizza for a week, going from thin crust to deep dish. The boxes barely fit in our freezer, which meant that we had to go from deep dish to thin crust. When I handed my husband a two-inch thick pepperoni slice the next morning, he told me to stop night driving. It was incredibly unsafe. What if you get mugged in the parking lot, he said. What if a shooter comes in? But I'd already thought of that possibility. If a shooter came to that specific supermarket at 1 a.m., I would launch myself over the deli counter and hide behind the meats. My parents still lived in Ontario, in the city of London, just north of Lake Erie, a two-hour drive from Detroit. When I told people where I was from, I made sure to say Ontario and not London to avoid having them think that I meant the other London, where more people were from. When my parents and I were naturalized in Canada, a man in uniform took our Chinese passports and punched holes through them all along the bottom. I was not yet 18, and my parents instructed me on the benefits of naturalization. To work or travel or buy property as a Canadian citizen was infinitely easier than doing so as a Chinese one. And if I married a Canadian, I would not need him for citizenship. I would already have it. I was driving during the daytime like a normal person when my parents called from Buenos Aires prior to embarking on a 2,000-person cruise. Retired, they now used their savings to voyage the world and were finally off to see Antarctica before it melted down to a nub. Way, they said in unison for hello. Way, 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 until I said way back. Then they wanted to know what my lawyer had said and when we could all fly to China to visit my last living grandparent, a woman well into her 90s who had held on through several lockdowns her, my mother, in order to see me, my cousins, and my parents in the same room one last time, an event that had not occurred since I was a child. After I told them what the lawyer had said, they sighed in unison. Why I had chosen to stay in America after grad school was beyond them. Yes, the pay was better, but the health insurance was much worse. I said, my job is here, my husband, friends. But did it ever occur to your husband, asked my father, who only ever referred to my husband as your husband, never Matt, his official name, did it ever occur to your husband to move to Canada, where in 30 years, everyone will be moving because climate change will make so much of America uninhabitable. I didn't have a response to that. Way, my father said, after too much time had passed. My father was against the green card and on principle dual citizenship. Why did China not allow dual citizenship? because that country knew what he knew. You're either in or you're out. There's no such thing as sharing first place. The fact that dual citizenship conferred the right to vote in two countries made him nervous. One person shouldn't get two votes when so many have none. My parents had no desire to move to the U.S. All they saw on the news were the crazy elections, the guns, and the perpetual droughts and floods in California the only state they liked for its gorgeous coastline. Jersey rarely had disasters like that, I explained, 
You didn't even have to pump your own gas. There was always a Wawa or a highway to take you out of Jersey to anywhere else you liked. Weiwei? My father asked, and I said no, Wawa. Matt had a sister, younger by 10 years. She was my Gen Z sister-in-law who, when happy, snapped her fingers silently and said, slay. Soon after Europe reopened, she gave herself a six-month sabbatical in Spain. By sabbatical, she meant that she had quit her job abruptly, and six months was the length of time she could afford to travel before she had to find another job. She wished to become fluent in Spanish while volunteer teaching English. My husband asked how she was going to get fluent in another language when she spent most of the time speaking the one she already knew. His sister asked why he had to be like that when she was already low-key stressed. Until the lawyer said that we shouldn't travel, the plan had been for us to visit her and for my husband to slip her a thick envelope of cash, metaphorically, through Venmo, which would then allow her more months in which to become fluent. I love this about my husband, the big gestures, the soft heart. Naturalization was a big gesture, and once my green card application was in, my husband told his parents, and his parents drove across two states that day to take us out to lunch. At lunch, my mother-in-law had a glow and spoke of how pleased she was that I was coming into the family. Though Matt and I had already been married for two years and had dated for five years before that, she asked if a green card was actually green, and I said that it was a muted, tasteful green, like sage. But formally, it was called a Certificate of Alien Registration and was granted only to little green men with abnormally large heads. The joke landed badly, and my new family stared at me. You're not a man, my mother-in-law huffed. You're an accomplished young woman with a reasonably sized head. She added that once the bureaucratic bullshit was over, she would like us all to go to Portugal, where she thought we had some lineage, having just got her results from Ancestry.com. I told my mother-in-law that I had no Portuguese ancestors, and she asked how I could be so sure. Had I done Ancestry.com? I didn't always go to the supermarket. Sometimes I sat in the car and scrolled through my phone. Obviously, I could have done that from bed, but night driving was not supposed to be rational, and I clicked on way more random links while I was in an empty, well-lit parking lot. 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of the border a fact I learned from a page of facts that you might not know about Canadians. The first time I typed the word naturalization in a text, my phone auto-corrected it to neutralization. A good friend of mine had been planning her wedding. Then the pandemic happened, and it was postponed, postponed, postponed. Finally, she canceled the thing altogether and went to City Hall. The money she saved by not paying for half a wedding, deposits were lost, she put toward a honeymoon of indefinite length. She and her husband would go to Korea and Japan, across Southeast Asia, through Morocco, and the nice parts of Europe, and then down to Patagonia. Korea for her relatives, who would not have flown out for her wedding anyway. Japan for his. To reduce her other commitments, she, like my sister-in-law, left her job, and he had already been laid off. The husband came from enough family wealth not to have needed the job he was laid off from in the first place, nor after marriage did she need to work. While they were in Korea, she started a social media account on which she posted a daily picture and captioned it with an itemized list of how much they'd spent that day on food, housing, and transportation. 
The goal was to stay frugal. On the one hand, it made sense, but on the other, why? While I was at my job that I couldn't quit, a photograph arrived in my inbox from my father. I saw two people of my parents' height and build bundled in several layers of coats with dark sunglasses and full face wraps holding a sign indicating that they had arrived in Antarctica. There was no way to confirm that these were my parents. I could not even tell if the individuals were Asian. A day later, he sent me another email, a photo of two certificates they'd received from the ship's captain, printed with their full Chinese names, confirming that they had transited the Antarctic Peninsula, going all the way to a latitude of 64 degrees, 58 minutes south. My father liked, as I did, tangible and quantifiable markers of success. As our lawyer kept saying, for my application to succeed, my marriage had to be bona fide. We heard that phrase on loop, sometimes twice in one billable minute, from the Latin meaning in good faith, genuine and not counterfeit. I imagine the ancients waving bits of gold at one another and saying, this is a bona fide Roman coin. Now give me in return a bona fide donkey. One Sunday morning while we were having breakfast, Matt's sister video called us and asked what we were doing. Before we had a chance to answer, she started to cry. She was outside on a roof deck, sipping midday a glass of Madeira. The sky looked beautiful, but we couldn't comment on it. We had to jump right in. Trouble with her host family, trouble with the school. The family had set a curfew, which she had already broken twice. The third time, she would have to go. The school had led her to believe that she would be more like a tutor, paired with small groups. Some days, 30 kids showed up to her classroom, and each child wanted to be read to, but no two could agree on the same book. When parents complained at pickup, she couldn't follow any of their Spanish. On top of that, her best guy friend from college was meant to visit this weekend, but had canceled at the last minute after having contracted the virus. Matt listened patiently, not pressing her about the curfew or the guy friend, I was about to say that the fastest way to learn a language is to be put in impossible situations where you are yelled at and you can't yell back. Trust me, I've been there. And trust me, you will survive. But seeing my sister-in-law cry on a roof deck made any teachable moment seem cruel. Why tell someone to just survive when she wants to thrive? She's having a bad time, my mother-in-law said on FaceTime a few days later, from the airport at the gate for a flight to Spain. A very bad time, and she's all alone. She's just a child. That doesn't mean you drop everything and go to her, Matt said. Absolutely it does, she said. Children are children. His mother worried about us too, and asked Matt, not infrequently, what if the green card doesn't go through? What if the green card doesn't go through? What if the green card doesn't go through? The lawyer offered no guarantee, but believed that my case would not fail unless I lost my employer or husband or committed a felony or developed one of those communicable diseases or traveled out of the country or showed up drunk to the interview or gave answers that unbonafied us or made me seem unpatriotic. From Patagonia, my friend posted reel after reel of her and her husband spinning 360 degrees in lush valleys surrounded by snow-capped peaks. The wind here is constant, she wrote in her caption, allowing for a steady flow of hashtag puns about how the most beautiful place in the world was blowing them away. You have FOMO, my husband said. It's a 20-mile hike to get there, I said, not to mention the flight down, the ferry, the bus to the campsite. 
In truth, I never really liked the logistics of travel. Jet lag often turned into insomnia. I puked in moving vehicles without warning. Once on a wine tour in Tuscany, I took off my own sock to puke into. The van didn't have bags. That sock I had to leave in the Tuscan countryside by a gravel road. As I was puking into it, I thought of my mother in an event that I had no memory of, but that she knew had happened because she was there. On the plane from China to Canada, our one-way tickets paid for by my grandparents so that my mother and I could reunite with my father in Ontario and start our fun immigrant lives. On this 13-hour flight, I drank an entire can of Sprite. I'd never been on a plane. I'd never been given an entire can of Sprite. I was small enough that when I stood on my seat, my head barely cleared the headrest. The person in the row behind waved to the top of my bowl cut. Then, my mother said, I stood on tiptoe and projectile vomited at this person, the entire contents of the can. Was that act my secret rebellion against leaving China? Was it my body knowing that I would not see my grandparents and cousins again for at least five years? Was my projectile vomit FOMO? That's not what people mean by FOMO, my husband said. Fear of missing out on what you have left behind. F-O-M-O-O-W-Y-H-L-B, I said. My husband remained silent. My friend and her husband traveled to Santiago, and in a new post, she was eating with a happy Asian couple who turned out to be my mom and dad. I texted my mother about their whereabouts, and she confirmed that they were indeed in Chile exploring the art. Art? I texted back. News to me that my mother cared about art. Yes, we love art, she replied. She and my father had bumped into my friend and her husband at a food court, to which, after visiting art museums that morning, they'd all gone with the same idea of getting a cheap meal from the equivalent of a Panda Express. My parents paid for the meal, which was why my friend wrote in her caption, so serendipitous meeting the parents of a friend. Zero dollars for lunch. YOLO. What were the chances, I said to my husband, Matt looked at the photo of my friend, her husband, and my parents. He said, everyone there probably thinks the four of them are a family. The institution of family meant a lot to Matt, to look like a family, to have the same paperwork and last name, though I hadn't changed my name and he and I did not look like a family. We don't all have to match, I used to tell him. We're not a suit of cards. But I also understood his desire for congruity, At border control, officers inspecting our passports asked him no questions and asked me the most obvious ones, like what my country of citizenship was and where I was born. These two answers never matched, and it seemed that the point of their questions was to remind me of that fact. Here was another reason I loved my husband. He had a very idealized sense of justice. Once, before we boarded a plane to the other London, A gate attendant called me to the desk, where she checked my ticket and passport, which had already been checked by TSA. Then I was escorted to stand in a line just outside the gate, alongside other women, some with children, some without, but all of a darker skin tone than those who were being allowed to board. A second gate attendant checked my passport, and after holding the picture up to my face, let me go. My husband had long been cleared to board, but stood fuming at the desk where the first attendant assured him that passport checks were random, and he replied, oh, really? 
I'm fine, I told him on the bridge, where he shouldered my carry-on so that he was now holding three bags and pulling a roller board, and I was carrying nothing. Not far from the supermarket was a 24-hour gas station with 10 lanes. I opened my window a sliver and asked for the tank to be filled. Then the windshield cleaned. Not far from the 24-hour gas station was a school, a park, and a 24-hour cemetery. As I looped around the cemetery, I thought about death and rebirth. Immigration is both of these things, and there was a period in middle school when all my mother and I did on weekends was go to the mall and sit at the food court, a plate of stir-fried noodles between us. She didn't care about art then. We had no money for cruises or things we didn't need. The eating of those noodles was either death by salt or dismay at what the West had done to Chinese food. I really hate it here, my mother would tell me. I wish I could leave. The implication being that my existence prevented her from leaving, which prevented her from being happy. And had I not been physically in front of her, she might have just given up on the process and left me, the mall, and the country without being reborn. By default, zombies have insomnia. Insomnia. To be undead, you first had to die and then claw yourself out of your own grave. A pale hand sprouts from the dirt like a spring daffodil. I be alive, this zombie shouts. Then she wanders around in confusion for years. Can someone help me with a problem? Can someone please tell me if I'm dead or alive? For a week, I slept and felt like a real person, as opposed to, say, a zombie. During this great week of clarity, I told myself, yes, I'm excited to be one degree closer to being American. Excited when three years after I get the green card, I can apply for citizenship to become Chinese, Canadian, American, like one of those people with multiple last names. Clarity led to productivity, and during this great week of productivity, I compiled marriage interview tips and sample questions. Tip, do not give vague or inconsistent answers. Question, what color is your current bedroom duvet? Tip, but no need to avoid talking about difficulties you've had as a couple. Question, how many duvet covers do you have and who buys them? When we practiced, Matt guessed two, and I said six, because I'd bought them. And staring at me, he exclaimed, six? Further details, should the U.S. government be interested, the six duvet covers are of different textiles, and this alien is unable to sleep under any of them. Aliens can experience identity fractures or short circuits of the brain. Eventually, new bone grows over these fractures, healthy cells wrapping existential ones, Zombies are not bona fide people, but they're closer to being people than aliens, so. The next time Matt's sister video called us, she was on a different roof deck. She looked happy, tanned. She had done something new with her hair. Surprise, she said, and panned the phone to my mother-in-law, who we knew was there, and my father-in-law, who we did not. Matt turned his phone to face himself completely. Dad, what the fuck are you doing there? He said, Matt and his father had the usual bond, baseball, barbecues, inside jokes. Dad would have told me if he was going to Spain, Matt must have thought, and what did it mean that he hadn't? Hey, son, his father said, and took Matt's sister's phone and put it to his ear. For a few seconds, until Matt's sister convinced him that he could hold the screen at arm's length and talk directly at it, we only saw the dark inside of my father-in-law's auditory canal. Just here for the weekend, his father said, holding the phone exactly at arm's length. 
didn't want to make a fuss in case you guys felt left out. My mother-in-law could be heard saying her husband's name sternly. My father-in-law looked off screen and said, what? Soon, sister, mother, and father all had to go. A sunset dinner, dance party, river cruise, and more Madeira. Later, I asked Matt if he wanted to talk about it, and he said, what was there to talk about? Our two families abroad having fun without us. What was the big deal about that? He busied himself with emails, one in particular, politely worded but long, asking our lawyer when we could expect to have news. Not that we didn't understand the process or were trying to rush it, not that we wished to piss off the U.S. government or her. Both she and the government had important jobs, freedom, etc. Waiting for a green card was a first world problem. And while the mention of first world problems has never made a person living in the first world feel better, We were grateful to have these problems over others. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Beyond manifest anxiety, it was unclear what the email was actually about. He got a reply immediately, an out-of-office message informing us that the lawyer was on holiday. When my Nzambia came back, I drove to the usual places. For three nights straight, I had my full tank topped off. The fourth night, I wondered what lay beyond the cemetery, so I drove a little farther. Beyond the cemetery was another supermarket, another Wawa, another highway that took me to another gas station. Then suburbs, churches, schools, more cemeteries. As I drove, I wondered how many iterations of American towns I'd have to pass through to get to the Canadian border. North was the border, east was the ocean. For each minute I drove, I asked myself what would happen if I drove for another minute. It's only another minute, I thought. And when was the last time I'd gone to the border? What did a border look like these days? In supermarket or cemetery, with which would this country end? That was why Kiwang, reading her story, Status in Flux. She has been publishing fiction and nonfiction in The New Yorker since 2018. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Vatessa Moshveg reads Two Ruminations on a Homeless Brother by David Means. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.